All right, welcome to a Christmas edition of Backlash Podcast. We want to thank everybody for spending some time listening to us this year. If you did listen, I mean, there's seven people. Wait, no, Brad, we decided there's 11 people that listen. So thank you to the 11 people. We hope you guys all have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Of course, we will have a episode out next week because that's what we do. So we'll officially say Happy New Year next week. But for some people, they might not listen. Maybe they'll catch it this week. So we'll do it a couple times. Anyways. Brad Hoppy's available with us today. Austin Wiggerman's over there helping Brad get ready for show season. So he's over there as well. We'll talk to him a little bit. And we have Sam Stone this week. For those of you that may not know, Sam is probably not a household name within muskie fishing. But that doesn't mean that he isn't one of the better anglers in the sport. Definitely puts a lot of huge fish in the net. Austin, you fish with him quite a bit. And you can vouch for him as well. I've seen his pictures on social media. He's putting some giants in the boat. Super passionate young angler who is uh, well, come up and coming in the musky industry. I don't know if he's even up and coming. He's already there, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Sam can bring quite a bit to the table, and he does some unique stuff. So hopefully we can get some of that out of him tonight. Yeah, well, he's out there you know, chasing muskies every waking moment that he can if he's not working. And he's sleeping in truck stops or parking lots of hotels and you know, he's just chasing them all, all around. And he's not just Wisconsin. He's not just Minnesota. He's fishing in Illinois. And so, you know, we kind of get a lot of different perspective. Austin ditched out on him and decided to become a full-time guide. So, you know, Sam lost his, you know, full-time fishing partner. And now he's got to chase things solo. So we'll talk a little bit about that angle as well. I don't know. I think it worked out for him. He ended up with the bed and not the front seat of the truck. But I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about that. Definitely. You know, in most places in the muskie range, the season's over. Now it's time to look forward to hanging out at muskie shows. And, you know, if you uh, got a gift card or whatever for you know, Christmas, maybe you got one from Team Rhino Outdoors or Muskie Mayhem Tackle, but you can definitely go, you know, check out our website, teamrhinooutdoors.com, for all the latest and greatest in muskie gear. And speaking of the latest and greatest muskie gear, Brad, what do we got now? Well, you have added a few more tricks up your sleeve, right, Jeff? You have St. Croix rods, and then you added grandmas. So, I don't know, man. Your selection just keeps growing, and that's the beauty of Team Rhino Outdoors, that's for sure. Yes, sir. And if you're looking for a reel now, you can get yourself some Abu Garcia reels online, too. We have their new Max 4. Have a few of those left. I think we have a couple of the beasts around right now. And we have more coming on the way. Lots of stuff. I mean, we're like you said, we're we're always in our quest to become your one-stop shop for musky fishing gear, and so we continue to work towards that. We'll have a few more tricks up our sleeve as we continue on. But for now, those are the tricks that we're willing to talk about. So if you're looking for a Saint Croix rod, you want a uh, Legend tournament, or you want a Mojo casting or trolling rod, we have those covered. Premier, and we have a few elites with you know more rods on their way too. So we'll we'll bring them out to shows. We'll kind of have a uh, well-rounded display at our, our booth this year with lots of different products. You know, the things that you've brought back into the store now recently, it, it just keeps growing and it's huge. Uh, I can't uh, say enough about what you've accomplished. I definitely appreciate it, Brad. And we couldn't do it without, you know, awesome customers and, you know, all the support from everybody within the industry as well. It's been uh, quite the ride and, you know, hopefully it's just a, uh, you know, it's still just the beginning. You know, we're still, I'd say, kind of young into this thing. And, you know, hopefully we can keep rolling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no different here than uh, Muskie Mayhem Tackle as well. 
we couldn't do what we do without the customers. And we truly feel blessed that we, we have the customer base that we do have. It's been a great year. You know, it's hard to believe it's over already, Jeff. Um, we've been doing this, what, is it two and a half, three years now with the podcast? But it's incredible, man. Uh, it's been a wild ride. And again, whether it be our businesses that we're running or it be the podcast, we can't do it without the people. And uh, they definitely make it worth our while. How about three and a half years, Brad? We'll have our four-year okay. anniversary in May. That's how long we've three. been doing this. Three and a half, I guess it is. Yeah, I should know that with uh, this being our 201st episode. After last week's episode, 200 was kind of a milestone. And definitely, I think we, we played it up pretty good with some good names and bigger names in the industry. I don't know. Simple math, I should have known that it was that long. <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't already, go check out episode 200. It's one of our bigger milestones, and we went out and... We tried to find a bunch of, you know, major players in the muskie industry that we haven't talked to, and then we had to get uh, Dick Pearson on. So it's almost like you can't have episode 200 without him, Brad. Yeah, absolutely. I love Dick Pearson. He's uh, always been a really good favorite of mine. Not to say that the rest of the crew that we had on episode 200 is not worthy, that's for sure. I mean, four big names, and then we had Dick Pearson to, to top everything off. I mean, I... I truly love listening to that guy. He's just, uh, he's a character. And I think Al Linder even says it, that uh, there's truly a bunch of characters in this industry and he's not wrong. You know, one of the cooler things about it, Brad, is I think they all agreed that they would come out and do individual episodes. So we'll hopefully have them on at some point this winter, potentially early in the beginning part of the season. It just depends on how we lay this out. You know, we always have this guide list or this list of, you know, people we want to talk to and, you know, sometimes we plan things out in advance and some things we kind of wing it. We don't really have this real set regimented schedule of who we're going to talk to. We just kind of have this pile of people that we want to talk to. And we're definitely going to get them all on for individual episodes because they bring so much to the table. Yeah, there's no other way to say it. And I, I don't know. Like I said earlier, we're blessed, Jeff. I mean, we've had a wild ride with the podcast. We're having wild rides with our own businesses. and. It's truly remarkable what's uh, taking place. So I think with that being said, I wish everybody a Merry Christmas. We'll probably do it at the end of the episode as well. And we want to thank everybody again for their support all this year, all of the past, you know, eight years for us and 15 plus for Muskie Mayhem. Brad, was it, is it 15, 16, 17? What is it for you guys? It's 18 years now. You were off on that, but I was off on the, uh, the years of recording podcast, I guess, but yeah, we're 18 years in. It's it's hard to believe. Like I said, wild ride. Let's get after it. All right, our guest this week is Sam Stone. And, you know, we'll say that I, would, I wouldn't call Sam a weekend warrior. He puts a heck of a lot of fish in the net. But for the sake of this podcast, he's not a guide. He's not in the bait industry. He's literally just a guy that is passionate about chasing down muskies. Fishes for him anywhere and any time that he can. So, Sam... I thank you for taking time out of your schedule to do this with us, but I'll just send it over to you. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, what got you into musky fishing? Talk about what you do as far as, you know, musky fishing is concerned. You know, I know you fish PMTTs and you do a bunch of different things and you're on the water all the time. And quite honestly, I've been following you on Facebook for a long time and you put a heck of a lot of big fish in the net. So, you know, let's just get a background and history on you. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Getting into musky fishing, it kind of all started just 
like what most people do. My family growing up, we always had a place up north on Lake Tomahawk on the Minocqua chain in northern Wisconsin. And I just grew up fishing with my dad and grandpa just on weekends here and there. And all of a sudden, I caught a muskie, first muskie ever. We weren't muskie fishing, but after that, that's all I wanted to catch. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So once that started, my dad fully started to get into it because I wanted to. And then we hired, first time I ever took out a guide just to kind of learn how to do it. My dad had never done it. And then as I got older, I would say high school, I think I was 16. Our area here has a Wassa Muskie League, which we got into. And I got to know some older guys in my area and fished it with a buddy of mine. And from there, it just got bigger and bigger. My passion for muskie fishing. And I'm fortunate enough to right here in Wassa, we have Lake Wassa and the Wisconsin River. So I have two great places to fish within five minutes from my house. And so after that, I went to college. Fishing slowed down a little bit. My senior year of college, they had a college muskie and walleye league, which I believe only ended, lasted for one year or so. But I decided to do that, obviously, because I love to fish. Not a big walleye guy, but figure I could do that as well. And that's actually where I met Austin. And so we fished that for the year. And once that ended, Austin and I kept in contact. And he moved up here for a job, I believe an internship, actually. And so we fished together for that. And then once his internship was done, he got a job at the same place I did. So for four years, Austin and I worked together, lived together, and fished together. And we worked a job with 12-hour shifts. So three days one week, four days the next week. So all we did was fish on our days off. Always had someone to fish with. We would travel anywhere from Illinois to Minnesota, all over Wisconsin. You name it, we were fishing there. And in the past couple of years, since Austin started his guide stuff, I've been doing a lot more of my solo fishing and traveling. We fished PMTT this year as well. Fishing the PMTT kind of cut into the schedule a little bit. But normally I spend about six to seven weeks throughout the summer in Minnesota, traveling there or down to Illinois and do a lot of it by myself. And I was fortunate enough, I took the time to build out the back of my truck, which allows me to travel, whether it be for a day and a half trip there or a 10 day trip somewhere else. So I spend about as much time on the water as you can while still working a full-time job. Well, let's talk a little bit about the build out of your truck for people that want to spend as much time on the water and, and do it, you know, affordably and, you know, not have to pay hotels and all that kind of stuff. Let's talk about what you did there. Yeah, that's exactly why I did it for spending as much time as I do other places. Hotel fees is what kill you, kills you. So what I did was I found a $200 topper off marketplace, which I mean, normally they're like two, $3,000 and brand new. And I didn't want to do any of that. So I got a $200 topper off marketplace. And what I did was I probably put about another $200 into it, just making sure the locks work. So if I'm sleeping in it, I can lock it and I don't have to worry about people getting into my stuff. And my truck has a six and a half foot bed. So I'm able to put a twin size mattress in there and lay completely down still. So I don't have to worry about crunching up or laying down diagonally. And for building that part of it out for the bed frame, the easiest way to do it, I found, was two main posts and just one big piece of plywood over the top of it. And I put screws into the through the plywood that attached onto the main post. There's six of them. So the whole thing's only three pieces, and I got six bolts I can take in and out. So if I need to use the back of my truck for something else, it takes about five minutes to get it in and out. 
So that worked out really well. And just a twin size mattress, or if you want, you can put a full size mattress in there, but then you have no other room. And the other thing I did that helped a lot, I took what nine volt, like ice fishing batteries that you use for your flasher or whatnot. Obviously I didn't use them in the summer. So I rigged up the whole back with electrical to two of those. So I got lights in the back. I got USB plugs in the back or USB ports. I can plug a phone in. I can plug GoPros in if I want to charge them. I got lights in there when I'm, I don't know, at a ramp or a hotel or parking lot or something like that. So it worked out pretty well. Let's talk a little bit about how you secure your boat itself and how do you charge your boat. Do you bring a generator with you for charging boat batteries and things like that? Haven't, and I've looked into getting one, but for the price of them, I haven't done it. This year, I got a new boat, and I made the switch over to lithium batteries, and that's helped a lot. I've gained a lot of run time for that. But the way I normally would do it is a lot of these hotels, if you just talk to them and tell them, like, hey, I don't need a hotel room. I just want to plug into your hotel or the truck stop. You ask them, I just want to plug in and use your power. I offer them, like, 10 20 bucks. sometimes. Sometimes they'll say, yeah, 20 bucks a night or 10 bucks a night, or sometimes they'll just say, don't even worry about it and just go ahead and plug in. So, I mean, in, especially in Minnesota, a lot of these places already have people staying there with boats and trailers and trucks. So I just park next to them and plug into the hotel and crawl into the back of my truck. And it looks like I'm just staying in the hotel with everyone else. I've done some of that myself, Sam, and not in the back of the truck. I'm kind of anal. I slept in the boat at accesses um, over the years, especially when I was younger. And the reason I did that is for theft or whatever else. But there's that occasional time when a sheriff or a, a CO might pull into the access and say, hey, you can't camp here tonight. You know, one of those deals. So the hotel thing's probably a better answer. Yeah, there have been a fair amount of times where all of a sudden cops will pull into the landing, whether I'm just sitting in the truck, like taking a break or something. They're all pretty good about it, but it's technically illegal to sleep at a landing in the state of minnesota considered camping on public property that's why i went the hotel route and i've yet to find or have a hotel tell me no so it's always worked out pretty well i've heard you could do that at like walmart parking lots as well like i think they have power there and they allow you to do that and a lot of that i think i have a buddy of mine he does a lot of racing and so he'll be making long runs and i think he'll pull over in there with his uh now he's got a toy hauler, so he's not sleeping on the back of his truck, but I think he can plug in a Walmart parking lot. So have you ever tried that? Yeah, the only, I've done that a few times. Some Walmarts don't have power, or you have to park in all the semis, and I've gotten parked in before. So I try to avoid the Walmart. <laughs> all right, makes sense. It's going to be tough to get on the water if you're getting parked in by semis. Yeah, especially because it's generally pretty odd hours if I'm trying to hit a major or minor or something that might start at 2 in the morning or I'm sleeping in the middle of the day or We've gotten parked in a few times. I've spent close to 90 nights in it over the last two and a half years and haven't bought a hotel room in three years. 90 nights at $100 a night. Do the math on that. Exactly. That's a lot of money. I buy a lot of gear and a lot of gas. Yeah, exactly. Short of fuel, hotel rooms is going to be your biggest expense whenever you're trying to travel or fish any destination fishery. I got a quick question though, Sam. Um, I'm curious, do you ever try to sneak into that hotel for a free breakfast in the morning? You know, I never have, but a buddy of mine actually this fall asked me what hotel I stay at. And he stayed at the same hotel up in Detroit Lakes. And he actually said he snuck in for the continental breakfast and no one said a word to him. So, Was that Austin that did that? <laughs> no, I was 
<laughs> no, that was me. Sam was sending me in. He was talking in third person, but I, he was uh, he was sending me in as the guinea pig. Nice. Came back out with two plates, and they were asking me what I was doing. I said, it's for me and my buddy. There were a few times last year where I tried to park there for plug-in, and Austin was parked there blocking all the plug-ins. I didn't have long enough extension cords. I can only imagine, you know, he's probably causing you a lot of grief, Sam. Being a PMTC partner and everything else, um, it's probably nonstop issues. Yeah, you know, I mean, we basically probably saw each other for 340 days a year for four and a, four years. So we got pretty good at fishing together. And every now and then you have your little bouts, but for guys, you get over it pretty quick. So I got to ask the next question. Are you uh, doing the camping thing when you're going to these PMTT events? Um, this year, I did bring it down with me to Cave Run, just not knowing when we'd get down there or when I'd get down there. I made the drive through the night. I left work at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, drove through the night, 11 and a half hours, and I actually made my first cast during the PMTT, my first cast all year. So I didn't use it then, but I also took it with me and actually stayed in it for probably five nights when we were up at Leech pre-fishing and fishing the tournament. So I did use it for the PMTT. I can tell you this. I mean, I did it when I was younger, but as I've gotten older, that $100 a night doesn't scare me as much because the old bones kind of hurt a little bit more than they used to, put it that way. Yeah, I turned 30 this year. And let me tell you, it's... uh. I see how it's slowly going to start catching up with me. It's a little sore in the morning. I like to sleep a little more during these trips, and so I can see that. 30. He's just a kid yet. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm still able to fit, like, full, fully spread out on the back, uh, back seat, so I feel like I'm in bed every night. So I'm, whether I'm a kid or not, you want to call me, I'm, I'm getting great night rest when I'm out there doing it. Yeah, when him and I traveled together for all the years truck camping, I'd have to crawl up in the front seat and try to make my bed recline the seat as best I could. But Austin was short enough, he can lay perfectly across the bench back seat of my truck and lay like a bed. So he always got the good end of those deals. All right, Sam, let's change it up a little bit. So we get a lot of people that want to know about solo fishing, tips, tactics, you know, things to make solo fishing more uh, successful. And I know you, you, you know, you obviously just said you did a lot of that this year. You've done a lot since Austin, you know, decided he wants to jump into, you know, guiding all the time. Let's talk a little bit about that. You got any tips? First off, yeah, I was going to say, first off, you got any tips that you can offer up some people when they're uh, solo fishing? Yeah. Some of the best things I've done for myself while solo fishing was to help me. I mean, obviously when you hook into a fish, you can, the way you fight it, you never know where it's going to go or where you're going to be going. But my best thing is I've done is I always have obviously the net ready, but I have the handles elevated like waist high somewhere, whether it be on a windshield or I actually have a little bracket from a four wheeler that I now have my windshield. So rather than fighting a fish and having to fumble around by your feet to grab a net, I always keep it waist high. So it's just quick grab and scoop or you can grab it or set it back down and it's much more accessible rather than digging for it. And once you have fish in the net, one of the other things I do is I have elastic cords with little balls on them. You can get them at Harbor Freight for $5 for a pack of five. And I keep them on all cleats and all rails. So depending on where I net the fish or what's going on, the first thing I can do is strap the net down and then go from there, whether it's 
finding or getting the pliers if I got to cut hooks or whatnot. But I always have that there so the net's strapped down and I don't have to worry about that. The fish can relax. And I haven't used it yet, but they have a net buddy out as well. I'm not quite sure who makes it. One of you guys might know who makes it. I'm not sure. And I believe it clicks into a mount that you can have on a rail or a track or something like that, which is something I'm going to look into this year because then I don't have to worry about all these straps on my cleats or whatnot, taking them on and off. But that's been probably one of the biggest things for me. It was able to secure the net as soon as the fish is in it. There's no one in the boat to help you, so you're doing it all yourself. And then you can get a camera ready if you want, if you're taking pictures, or get a bump board out. And that's been the best thing for me. And as far as picture-wise goes, I have a $15 like phone holder from Amazon you can attach to anything. I have it attached to my steering wheel sometimes, or have it attached to a windshield. It, and it holds your phone, and I just throw it on video mode. And even if it's in the night, you just video mode with flash. And I hit play, and if it's better play the whole time and go back through it and take your pictures, screenshots on your phone or whatnot. But it allows you to have the whole thing running. You don't have to worry about it. You can put all your attention on the fish and get it unhooked and back in the water as soon as possible. Yeah, I can speak of the net buddy. I know uh, Team Rhino Outdoors has them at this point. And one of the neat things about that, just on a our last shoot for Mayhem's 10,000 cast, we used them down in Ohio. Chase Gibson had one in his boat. I have some now. And it is truly remarkable what you can do. You know, you put that fish in the bag, it allows you to lock that net right into place, whether you have a rail system or if you have a track system, there's two different models. And what that does for you is eliminates any fear of that fish kind of jumping out of that bag, right? fish is down there it's nice and comfortable it's in the water you're allowed to like you said go get your camera go get the board wet make sure everything's ready you got your tools and everything else and that fish is just sitting in that bag nice and comfortable so the net buddy is definitely something that i think all solo fishermen are going to want and does that just have like a piece that attaches to your net that slides right into the mount on a rail or whatever you have it on is that how it works that is correct. Yeah, it's really simple. I mean, it's a male to female type connection. There's a little okay. simple pin that you place into it and that locks it into place. And, and literally you can swivel it, you know, say 180 degrees as you have the fish in the bag, you can move it around so you can get the fish closer to the side of the boat. And it allows you to work on that fish with no issues. And um, it, it's just a super, super cool device. You know, not only as a solo fisherman, but also like when I'm filming, Chase is doing his things. He's grabbing tools. He's grabbing a bump board. I'm doing the same or maybe I'm filming. And it just allows you to be able to maneuver in the boat, say one or two guys in the boat. It takes all the worries out of, hey, somebody's got to hold this this bag. You know, you got to keep the bag so that the fish doesn't take off with it. But truly remarkable little idea. It's been a good tool. Yeah, I mean, I, I can absolutely second that. The, the, he he actually sent one over to me right at the end of the year, and and even as a one person guide, one person client type of deal, same scenario as uh, as Brad when they're filming. But I'm sitting there trying to get the best photos, best uh, memories captured, basically for my client. He's taking it out of the bag. We don't have to worry about the bag going anywhere, the net heading anywhere, and I can worry about taking the photos. 
he can worry about, he or she can worry about picking the fish up, making sure that all goes as smoothly as possible. And it just, it just eliminates a piece of the netting and, and photo taking and release process that you don't even have to think about. Yeah, it's definitely something I will probably just purchase at this point because the only issues I do run into sometimes with elastic bands or if where you're, the net is placed, it doesn't reach a cleat or doesn't reach a rail and you're trying to stretch things here and there to get it tied down as best you can. So that sounds like a much better solution. Yeah, I, I remember the days where I used to take the net, the bag itself, and actually try to weave it into to a cleat so that I'd make sure that it wasn't going to fall, right? So the client or whoever's maybe fishing with me, I would make sure that I wouldn't lose my net. And then second of all, try to lose that fish. So I would weave my net in the cleat, hoping that I would not lose it, wait for them to pull it out. And then I was able to, to maintain with a camera and take good photos. So yeah, the net buddy eliminates all of those types of issues that you've ever had with your bag. That It just totally takes care of all those different typical issues. That's nice. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, have to be purchasing one of those. It's just one of those things where it's just peace of mind and makes everything easier, no matter if it's one or you got three guys in the boat. just makes it easier. Jeff, did you have any time using it this year? No, I just played with it. I got it so late that I wasn't out. I didn't get on the water yet, but I, I played around with it a little bit, you know, in that time, like just out in my, in the boat, you know, in the garage. So I didn't have any real life experience with it like you did, Brad, but it's definitely seems like if you're a solo for angler, it's going to be really nice for that. And, you know, even if you got, like you said, if you got clients or whatever, and you don't want them to, you know, be on the bag and everything, it's, it'll be nice for that as well. Definitely a cool tool. Um, in fact, we, we recently sold out our first batch, Brad, so I had to get some more. So hopefully it'll be shortly around the time you hear this podcast that we'll have them back in. I know he shipped to me today. Awesome. Yeah. So can you kind of maybe do a little rundown on how you actually fish in your garage like that? I mean, are you pretending <laughs> cast or are you actually making little, you know, flips here and there? Yeah, maybe you got to use shorter rods because it's the ceiling's kind of low. You know, it's only a 10-foot ceiling, so if you're standing in your boat... You know, you need a little shorter rod. So, the, you know, if you're looking for 10-foot rods, it's probably not your best uh, idea. Well, that makes sense. But, I mean, you know, word has it on the street that uh, Team Rhino is also carrying St. Croix rods now, too. So do you have any of those shorter St. Croix? <laughs> I got a couple, yeah. I got some 7.6s. I didn't order yeah. any 7-foots, but, you know, 7.6. Perfect, perfect. Well, you could probably use a 10-footer in the in the garage when you're digging. Yeah, yeah, you probably could. You're right. I don't do much jigging in the garage, but, you know, I'm usually, at that point, once once the fish are in the garage, you're, they're more biting on bulldogs and bucktails. Uh, I'm just giving you crap. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, once you put it on your boat, then uh, that, buddy, it's truly incredible. There's no doubt. All right, so, Sam, let's talk a, li a little bit about this. So, you're solo angling, and I guess the one thing to do, the hardest thing to do when you're solo angling, I guess, is, you know, first off, like covering spots do you cover them um, do you try to cover less spots more thoroughly or are you still running gun approach and then the next question i would have would be bait selection like how often are you changing baits when you're solo fishing yeah that's one of the questions i ask myself quite frequently am i throwing the right bait in the right place at the right time i think everyone i ask themselves that all the time so what i generally do by myself is i take more on the slow side pick a confidence bait that i i mean Generally, you're going to get bit or at least see some fish because I prefer a confidence bait. 
going to work it better if you're confident in it, as opposed to if you're just throwing a bait that you heard they're eating on or something that you might not have a whole lot of confidence in and maybe your mind's not all the way in there. So I always start with a confidence bait. And what I like to do is rather than running gun, I'll pick like five key spots throughout a lake. If it's one I've fished before, I have five spots that I've seen or caught fish before. If it's a new lake, I'll pick a handful of spots that just look like they'd be great spots. And I will start by picking those apart and go from there. And if you're I'm moving fish and they're not eating, then I'll go back and start playing with different baits and whatnot. But I generally like to start with a confidence bait and work slowly through areas because obviously I only got one bait going through it. And if you're hitting an inside edge of a weed or a point weed point or whatever, I want to make sure I get all the right casts or right casting angles as opposed to just breezing through all these spots and just running and gun. And I like to take my time and try to pick it apart before I do anything else. What's the specific baits that you're going to choose to use when you're solo fishing, Sam, versus uh, if you had somebody else in the boat? Yeah, that's a great question. In Wisconsin, I'm more of a deep well, everywhere. I like clear water, but Wisconsin, I'm generally fishing deep weeds and stuff like that. So I start with some sort of rubber that you, obviously an active fish is still going to eat a pull pause bait, but you also might get some that are more neutral or less active fish to move on a rubber bait. So I start with something along that lines of Wisconsin for the most part. And even in the same in Minnesota, it might not be rubber necessarily, but a jerk bait or something that's going to get the fish to move or hopefully eat as opposed to when you're fishing with multiple guys, you can have a speed bait going through first and looking for that reaction strike. And then the back end of the boat can try to pick up some of the more neutral fish. I like to just start with a bait that I'm going to get the most amount of fish, whether they be active or neutral to hopefully come to the boat and one that's generally going to stay down in their zone more than anything. So I start with some sort of jerk bait for the most part. I would say that, you know, for myself, I, I really don't do as much solo fishing as I once did. 20 some years ago, I did solo fish. And I think partly because maybe I sucked at fishing and nobody wanted to go. Right. And once I started being successful, everybody was your friend. Right. So, but I know Jeff, Jeff, you spend quite a bit of time solo fishing too. I mean, is that kind of what you go to every time too? Do you, do you go to rubber or hard baits? I would say that's probably where I lean more. You know, I, I've i said it before, like for me, a bucktail isn't my confidence bait. I mean, there are times where I do catch them on them, but I'm going to lean towards, you know, a jerk bait, whether it be a suic or, you know, something along that lines, or it's going to be a bulldog of some type, whether it be, you know, reg dogs or mag dogs. I, I tend to go mag first, but, you know, last fall I had a pretty decent bite on reg dogs, which is nice because it gave me a, you know, gave me a little bit of a break from throwing mags. Not that those are that bad, but I mean, when you, when you throw mags and then you jump to a reg, you're like, wow, that's like nothing. So it's kind of an, a nice change when it's, when they're biting on those. Well, see, that's probably one thing I don't do enough of is I'm not good at downsizing. When there are plenty of times where it'd probably help or be beneficial to downsize a little bit, but that's one thing I'd like to do more of for myself is downsize every now and then if they're maybe not eating or just following. But I generally, I don't know, I just go for the big baits at the beginning and don't downsize as much as I probably should. 
you know, I'll say the reason that I downsized this fall was because, so last year I was fishing with my buddy Steve Jensen up in Hayward, and we were, I mean, him and I will typically almost never throw a reg dog together, and so we were fishing, and we hadn't had a lot of success on mag dogs. I think maybe I got one, but overall, it seemed like they were actually just following dogs. Well, then... Like a couple days later, he was fishing with clients and his clients didn't want to throw mags. So he just gave them regs. And then, of course, they start eating reg dogs. That story, you know, he told me that he's like, hey, just so you know, my clients were getting them on reg dogs. I was like, oh, man. So we could have been going smaller the entire time. That story is pretty much what got me to even think about it. Because typically I would once I get outside our like June, I would probably never throw a regular dog again. But that story that he told me was what got me to downsize, but I'm much like you, Sam. I don't downsize that often. And it's, pro- it's probably a detriment on occasion. Yeah. I don't know if it's more or less. I know a lot of other people downsize, so I try to go against the grain a little bit, but either way, since Austin started guiding, I've heard from him multiple times about the way clients throw smaller baits or work different baits differently. And they get bit more often than not. And it's like, should probably try to work some of those things in, whether it be downsizing or slowing certain baits down or just do different things every now and then. I mean, I, I think it's even just amazing when you look at the PMTT stuff. I mean, the, the, this was our first year fishing the PMTT, but between guiding and, and the PMTT results from over the years, it's just, it's, it's incredible how much more action, how many more fish the smaller profile bait it just gives you the opportunity for every size fish and it's not excluding big fish. You can fish a big fish spot with small baits, but like I just said to Brad, uh, the other day I said, they, they eat what you throw basically. So it's, it, I think there's a lot more that goes into, uh, the bait size decision with the, with the musky thing. And that goes down a whole nother road, but I mean, it's, it, it's it, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's amazing. The, the amount of information and things you learn from just simply guiding and having to pick the bait choices that are able to be used by your clientele. And as a day that Sam and I would have been out there fishing the same day, same conditions, we would have not been throwing the same baits yet because I was constrained to the lure size just to fit the clientele's needs and give them the opportunity to fish the same bait in a smaller size, like you guys were mentioning. It's, uh, it's something that I've definitely learned forcefully, essentially, but it, it's something that's without a doubt gets the job done. Sam can back that up. In our, in our fun fishing, we definitely struggle with the downsizing thing, but that, that's slowly changing, I think. I think a lot of that too ends up being if they're relatively new to the sport. I think everybody starts with smaller baits, different equipment. And as they graduate into having tons of time or experience on the water, the bait sizes get bigger and bigger. And I think that's just an evolution of the sport, I would say. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'll I'll never forget the first time I saw a monster Medusa, you know, and I was just like, we were saying to each other, there's no way that we're ever going to use that. You know, that's way too big. And now you look at probably Sam's basement wall and my boat and you're like, oh, well, <laughs> that, that only lasted for so long. I have way more large baits that haven't been eaten 
as opposed to small baits that don't get eaten. I will say that. Jeff, how can you relate that to business? I mean, do you see with Team Rhino Outdoors, do you see the fact that uh, smaller baits have become more popular? Because I have this feeling right now, right or wrong, I have a feeling that there's kind of been a changing of the guard or a lot of new musky anglers in the last three years or four years, whatever it might be. And I feel like they're kind of going smaller than they are new or bigger. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but it's just kind of a gut feeling. I don't know. That's, I guess it's a sort of tough question, Brad. You know, like we'll say, for example, bulldogs, a mag dog will be the best selling size in a bulldog, whether it be a pro mag or just a regular mag dog. Those are the best sizes. Now, we also sell a ton of like small crankbaits. I mean, we sell baby depth raiders and uh, like Bosch ads and the musky train diesels and, you know, all that small, those small crankbaits. So it's really a toss up, I guess I would say, you know varies by style and it varies by location. You know, I know that, you know, the anglers over in Minnesota, they obviously still prefer big baits and that, I don't think anything's changed that way. There's still a lot of them, but that doesn't mean we don't send some small baits over to Minnesota. We do, but by, you know, far and away, that's they're preferring larger baits over there in Minnesota. That's for sure. Wisconsin guys were a mix, you know, they're kind of all over the board and I feel like Illinois is about the same. And I think as you start to travel, you know, east a little bit. Ohio still likes smaller PA, West Virginia. They don't. They're they're kind of all over the map, too. They go big and small. And it seems like Kentucky is kind of like uh, smaller to midsize baits. So very regional. And um, it, it's definitely hard to say. It varies by bait style. You know, like I know in a Medusa, our, our, the regular size is probably our best seller. But it also yeah. is seasonal, too, Brad. I mean, you know, small baits in the spring is still something that people subscribe to. I definitely figured that you were going to say it was uh, associated to region, that's for sure. But it's still interesting to me. I, I just feel, I mean, and like I said, it's a gut feeling. So who knows? You know, and I think the region side of it does play a big part of that. And I think I've seen that for many, many years in the industry. But, you know, some of these big baits aren't being seen as much as they once were, in my opinion. And I, I think that sometimes can strike. Uh, Trigger some fish, I guess. Well, I know Sam probably can talk more on it since it's uh, his episode, but I mean, that's that's basically the basis of a ton of our Illinois fishing that we do for fun. But we just grab for the big baits down there because they don't see them. Yeah, it's pretty interesting when I talk to people about fishing Illinois, and obviously the only time I spend down there for the most part is the early season before Wisconsin opens up and before Minnesota opens up. But when I tell them that I've caught more fish on either mag dogs or husky deuces than any other bait in the month of April in Illinois, they are pretty surprised. And I think it more or less just started where when I fished down there with Austin, he would tell me and talk about everyone that the first thing they do is grab for the small ones. So we just simply kind of went the opposite. And I mean, you catch big fish, small fish, they still eat them, but I've generally reached for the bigger ones, even in the spring still. And it's, pretty surprising to most people when you tell them that well i think it'd be one of those things where we could all kind of like get outside of our comfort zone a little bit whether or not you're used to throwing big baits you you could definitely mix in some small that probably wouldn't hurt and if you're usually going small you know giving a shot to some big baits probably would be a good idea as well yeah absolutely and that kind of goes back to where i said when i'm fishing by myself the first thing i do is grab what i'm confident in 
just because I know I'm going to work it well and take the time to work it correctly and as opposed to grabbing something I may not be as confident in and not have my head completely in the game, but then switch it up when needed to. But I generally start with confidence stuff for those reasons. So, Sam, let's talk about this for a second. You know, we the key to it is knowing when to change up off a tactic. You know, if you're throwing, we'll say, a mag dog, how long are you going to give that mag dog before you're like, yeah, they're not on mag dogs today? I'll generally run through a couple spots. And obviously now with technology and side imaging and everything, you almost know they're there. And if they're not moving on these baits after a few spots, then I contact a handful of fish or more. And then if they're not moving or not following, then I'll start switching it up from there. But it's really nice to be able to look at your graph and side imaging and be like, oh, I went through that spot. There were five fish there, and I didn't move a single one of them on this mag dog. So then I might go for a straight retrieve. I might go the complete opposite before I start downsizing um, on a pull pause bait. You know, I heard you mention, you know, electronics there. Do you use any of the, you know, live imaging, whether it be, you know, the 360 or the live scope? Uh, last year when I got my new boat, I put Mega 360 on it right away. And it worked well, but it didn't quite do what I wanted it to because I cast 99% of the time. So it kind of gets distorted with the 360. So I got rid of that about probably in September and switched it out for Mega Live. And I didn't do much mega live musky fishing whatsoever. I'd plugged it in every now and then if I had a sucker down. But as far as my technology, I really just rely on side imaging more than anything at this point. You know, Brad, you're, you utilize all the technology. I'm sure you do as well, Austin, probably. It, do you still feel that side imaging is the most important one to have? Obviously, Sam feels that way. Is that what you guys think too? Yeah, I absolutely do feel that way. The one thing, and I've said this numerous times on several podcasts, the one thing that I have an issue with when it comes to live is it becomes kind of a video game, if you will. And there's tool, there's a reason to use it, right? I utilize it for reading where my structure is, where the weed line is, potentially seeing a follow behind a client or anybody that's in front of me fishing. You can see that follow and you can warn some people. Some people you're not going to want to warn because they're going to freak out. So you have to kind of read who's in the front of the boat at that time. Where I really like to utilize it as well when it comes to live is plain and simple trolling. It really, it gives the angler some interaction with the baits as well as uh, potentially follows or strikes. And and that's how I utilize my lives. Definitely see how trolling we would work a lot or work well being able to engage a client or be like, Oh, there's fish here and it's following and didn't eat. That was one thing I noticed more than anything with sucker fishing. I only probably used live two or three times with it, but there was one day where we didn't physically see a fish with our eyes, but we probably had 20 plus fish come up and chase suckers around and you would have never known they were there without it. But as far as casting, a couple times I tried to use it while casting by myself. I felt I actually was paying so much attention to it. I casted probably one third of the time I normally would. And it was more of a detriment to me than anything. Yeah, it can be. There's no question about it. I think that that's one of the issues when you have people using 
a bait on the front deck and I, I can tell them that there's a fish coming, like I said, it's going to freak some people out. The next guy is like, let me know when I got to follow, I'll be more prepared, right? But the other side to it too is in the trolling aspect, it's so awesome. There's no more need to try to remember or to go look in a book and, and know exactly where your baits are running. So every bait that I set, I set the line, I can see where the bait is in the water column, what it's doing, is it running straight, is it clean? Set that line, move it to the other side of the boat, and I utilize my live in, in that aspect for trolling. So it's definitely got its uses. My fear is, is that you could get sucked into it. No different than a, a 10, 13-year-old kid gets sucked into their cell phone where they just can't look up, you know? I don't want to be sitting there staring at the screen. I just, I, that's not my style of fishing. It probably never will be. So I, I look at it in that aspect. I mean, it's a tool. I think every piece and component to, to the electronics that we have today are tools. They're reference points. And if you utilize it in the right way, I think it, it'll benefit anybody. That's for sure. I just don't want to be sucked into staring at a screen. I want to concentrate on my fishing. So, yes, to answer your question, Jeff, side imaging, side view, whatever you want to call it, is definitely still the number one. That was a very long answer to get to there. Well, there's another <laughs> aspect to it, too, I, I could share, Jeff. You know, it's kind of interesting. Austin came up here this last week, and he's been helping in the shop. We're preparing for shows and what have you. It's that time of the year. And so it's been awesome to have Austin around, and, and he's done a ton of work. So we were in the garage and he's looking and he goes, what do you think about your Garmin trolling motor? So in August, I switched to a Garmin trolling motor. And primarily I did that because I had switched some of my head units to Garmin and I was having some interference from my old Perova. And so instead of trying to insulate it and trying to figure out the grounding issues and whatever else comes with that, I, uh, I just decided, all right, I'm going to go try the uh, Garmin trolling motor, which I did. And on that is a GT56 side view transducer mounted into it. So one of the coolest things that I found with that, I never dreamt that I would really want to have side imaging or side view on the trolling motor itself. I never thought it would be that useful because as I'm working a brake line or I'm working a weed line, I'm turning that motor continually, right? But where I didn't ever think that it might be utilized was when I was side drifting. And here in Minnesota, we deal with a lot of wind. And a lot of times we'll side drift a weed bed or we'll side drift a, a brake line of some sort. It enables me to now turn that trolling motor and I can turn it at 45 degrees or I can turn it 90 degrees off the bow as I'm side drifting. And now I can see follows. I can see fish. Um, where before, when you're just relying on your transom mounted side imaging, it's just going to be one big blur. So that definitely was a key as well for me. That's interesting. That's a, Austin and I have often talked about that in Minnesota when you're dealing with all that wind. I've looked into having a pole with a side imaging transducer on it just so it's faced the opposite way. And I've thought about trolling motor-wise but never thought I'd really use it a whole lot. But that actually is not a bad idea in way to utilize it that I've never really thought of. It just empowers you to, to use it and utilize it when you're not going forward. When he brought that up, it, it was kind of mind-blowing to me because essentially, like like we're talking about on the main topic, is essentially side imaging is overall what I, what I believe to be the most important tool. 
And as you do deal with so much wind out here or wind anywhere, essentially, your side imaging when you're drifting anything just becomes almost useless. That was like a, that was an eye opener to me. It was like, oh, of course, that's, of course, that's how that would be used. But I, I never even thought about it. You know, you can talk about 360 and the beauty of having that side view on that trolling motor is you have 360 right there. As an example, we're sitting still and I see a fish on side view on my trolling motor and all of a sudden I don't see it. Now I can turn that motor left or right and find that fish again. And now you can pinpoint where it's at. That would be good. That's the one thing I did notice about when it's short time I did have 360 on my boat. It's astounding how many times a fish would follow in. And rather than go back to where it came from, it just go off the other side of the boat and hang out. And I would never know it's there half the time unless it just happened to go past the transducer. But that would be one way to utilize it. I was surprised at how often they don't go back to where they came from right away. Yeah, I think one of the negatives of 360, plain and simple, is the speed of which it, it makes the full revolution, right? And so... Mm-hmm. By utilizing the trolling motor as a turning device, all of a sudden, boom, boom, you can, you can find that fish again way quicker instead of waiting for that to do one whole revolution and go, oh, it's over here now. So it, it's, it's very useful in that aspect as well. Well, it's just amazing how us as muskie anglers talking on this podcast utilize that technology or, un, or don't use, utilize that technology just based off of the restrictions to it in a different way than say bass anglers or walleye anglers use it because the musky world simply is just so niche that technology and the way the bass anglers use it and the way that we want to use it was just it's it's just it's amazing to me how it just differs with the same same technology yeah and unfortunately with how small and niche the musky community is a lot of these companies aren't going to be making trolling motors or things that are more specific to that. So we're always going to kind of have to adapt. Well, my one question for you, Brad, though, with that Garmin trolling motor, is it a cable driven trolling motor technically? So are you able to work with it from the back of the boat with a foot pedal or how does that work? It's not actually cable driven. So the foot pad is Bluetooth and you can okay. carry that foot pad anywhere you want. It reacts and acts just like a cable driven. I'll tell you that. Um, if you're not careful and you have the power turned up a little bit, you could literally throw out somebody on the front deck really quick and easy. <laughs> but in that aspect as well, I mean, fishing out of the back of the boat as a guide, it definitely is a, a useful tool as well. Number one, I used to always get cables made so that I could run my Trova cable through the gunnel of my boat so that nobody was tripping on a cord, right? And most guides have them just laying across the bow and draped across the back end of the boat. I always had a cord made that would sit inside the the hull of the boat. With the Garmin, I don't have to worry about that because it is Bluetooth. But the other aspect of it is, is a lot of times clients or buddies or whatever are standing in the bow of the boat and they block the view of where that trolling motor head is. With the Garmin foot pad, The only negative that I will say about that pad is that it sits high off the floor. So if you don't have a recessed area, your right foot or your left foot, depending on how you work your trolling motor, is going to be elevated. And I've stood on my left leg for so many years, it really has screwed up my hips and my back. And not only that, but the heel, my left heel is very, very sore and tender a lot of times. 
just from standing like that for so many years. And that's the only downfall that I've seen. But the neat thing about it being like a cable-driven style, if you will, foot pad, it allows me to kind of know a reference when it's blocked. When the head of the trolling motor is blocked, I still have a reference to where the pad is positioned. And when I'm talking about the position, I'm talking about forward or backward. I know where my trolling motor head is without having to look at it visually because I can just feel it in my foot, if that makes exactly. any sense at all. Maybe I didn't do a very good job explaining that. but uh, No, it definitely but, makes sense because the angle of your foot pedal never is always the same as the angle of the head of the trolling motor that way. You got correct? it. You're correct. Okay. You're correct. And we're with like a Taroba or some of the other trolling motors. You're not going to know unless you look at the head of the trolling motor. Mm -hmm. That's what the one thing we talked about in the boat before it's Austin. I, I don't quite understand how some companies like with live and whatnot, it, I can make a little icon that shows up in my graph and it shows me where the transducer and stuff pointed. It'd be really nice if they could do that with a trolling motor head. So I could just look at my graph and know which way the trolling motor is pointed. Cause I just made the switch to all the stuff in the back of my boat. And that's the one thing I've struggled with or did deal with that I never did before was with people in the front of the boat trying to see what's where when they're in the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's always a, a problem for all guides. My understanding is, is that you can get that for your Garmin. I don't know if that's true. Um, I don't want to spout something out that I don't know about. So far, I have not figured out how to do that. But I do have a pane, if you will, on my head unit that tells me what power my, my trolling motor is set at. It tells me how much uh, battery life I have and so on and so forth right on my head unit. But I have not figured out that aspect of where that trolling motor is pointed. All right, Sam. So one thing we've asked on lots of podcasts, but we don't do it consistently, is if you have one tip that you could offer up to help people put more fish in the net, we'll say this season, but it's probably going to be 2023. What do you have to offer up? I would say one thing that I've done that's helped me the most is go against the grain a little bit. Whether people are fishing shallow, maybe work a little deeper, and as the sport's gotten bigger and bigger, Stuff like this, I've noticed, has made a bigger and bigger difference for myself and people I'm fishing with is just going against the grain of people. If everyone's fishing a weed edge, a lot of times these fish will bump out the cast length behind it. So just bump out a little deeper. Or if people are, like we talked about before, throwing big baits, try throwing a small bait or just go against the grain a little bit has helped me put much more fish in the net and getting outside of my comfort zone. I learned a lot more and it's put a lot more fish in the net for me. I would agree with that completely, Sam. And I, I think one of the things that I would encourage everybody to do is basically do something outside of your comfort zone. Try to learn something, whether it be, you know, 20 minutes, one day, an hour, do something every day that you're on the water, something different. Maybe it's a location, maybe it's a bait, maybe it's how you work your bait. Do something that uh, stretch yourself and grow. Yeah, absolutely. You hear about every year, every so often, you hear about these new bites people found or people catching fish different ways. So I've re or last year or so tried to always, like you said, take a certain amount of time throughout a day or maybe be a day throughout a trip and do something totally different and you never know what you might stumble on. 
Well, Sam, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us about muskie fishing. I hope that you had a great season. I hope that your 2023 season is even better. And I hope that you have yourself a Merry Christmas. Yeah, I appreciate it. You guys too. Merry Christmas and thanks for having me on. And for our listeners, we want to thank you all for putting up with us again for another episode. We hope that everybody has a a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, depending upon when you listen to this episode. And we'll catch everybody again with a new episode next week. Mm